Which Way to the Promised Land? That's our message series as we're working our way through the second book of the Bible, uh, the book of Exodus. And today, we're going to end up in Exodus chapter 14, this powerful story of a God who rescues and delivers by parting the waters of the Red Sea for the people of Israel to uh, walk across into freedom. Uh, That's where we're heading. I want to start again by rewinding to last week. Uh, Last week we ended with the Passover meal. God says to Moses and Aaron, I want you to go to Pharaoh, say, let my people go. And and Pharaoh says no. And so every time Pharaoh says no, there's a series of plagues that get sent on the land of Egypt. The Passover was the 10th plague. Last week I said, we'll talk about the plagues a little more this week. What is God up to with these plagues? What's this all about? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. Uh, Exodus chapter 7. And there's this interesting sort of back and forth going on. Pharaoh kind of wants Moses and Aaron to prove to him that God has sent them. And who is this God anyway? This Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a new God, a God that Pharaoh had not heard of before. And so Aaron and Moses go go about trying to prove that God has sent them. Aaron takes his staff, throws it on the ground, and as soon as it hits the ground, it turns into a snake. And Pharaoh is largely unimpressed. Here's verses 11 and 12. Then Pharaoh called in his own wise men and sorcerers, and these Egyptian magicians did the same thing with their magic. They threw down their staffs, which also became serpents. And so part of what we see happening in these couple of verses, it gives us, it's pointing to us, what is God up to with the plagues? It's all about power. Who has power? Who has real power? And so Aaron does this magic trick, but Pharaoh's magicians are able to do the same trick, And then the real kind of turning point is the last line of this verse. Then Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. In other words, Aaron's staff is better than the magician's staff. Aaron's trick is better than the magician's trick. The source of Aaron's power is greater than the source of the magician's power. Next thing that happens is what we typically refer to as the first plague, the plague of blood where the water in the land of Egypt is turned into blood, including the Nile River. How is Pharaoh going to respond to this? Let's read it together. Verse 22 on the screen, read it with me. The magicians of Egypt used their magic, and they too turned water into blood. So Pharaoh's heart remained hard. He refused to listen. Here's what I want you to start paying attention to. Uh, Pharaoh is not powerless. He actually has a lot of power. The people of Israel are powerless. Uh, They've been held as captives. Uh, They've been oppressed generation after generation because of the power of Pharaoh. And so when Moses and Aaron come to this really powerful guy and say, uh, let the Hebrew people go, let your entire kind of workforce go, Pharaoh is not quick to say yes. In fact, he's a little upset primarily because work is not getting done as this back and forth is happening. And so he thinks the people of Israel are lazy and let's make it even harder on them than it has been. So we've been providing straw for you as you make bricks. Now you have to go get your own straw and I still want you to produce the same amount that you've been producing. Pharaoh is starting to exert his power at this point in the story. It's almost like Pharaoh wants people to worship him as God. Let me say that again. It's almost like Pharaoh wants people to worship him as God. In Moses' day, there were no atheists. Everybody believed in God. In fact, it would be most accurate to say everybody believed in a whole bunch of gods. And then Yahweh shows up and he says, there's only one God. 
But for the people of Egypt, all kinds of gods. Let's take a look at some of the gods uh, the people of Egypt worship. We got Happy, the god of the Nile. Heket, a fertility goddess, often portrayed in Egyptian artwork as a female body with a frog head. There's Geb, the god of the earth, because as people just observed what's happening in the world around them, they would see life growing up from the ground fruit and vegetation that they could eat that would give them life. And so they wanted to worship whoever is making that happen. Geb is the god of the earth. There's Hathar, a goddess of love and protection, often depicted as a female with a bull's head. And so cows, cattle are this uh, sacred animal for the people of Egypt. They worship a sun god named Ra. There's also a goddess named Isis. And Isis is sometimes referred to as the great magic. And so the magicians in uh, Pharaoh's court who were doing stuff in the temple, doing the same kinds of magic tricks that Aaron is doing, they would call on Isis as the source of their power. When you start to pay attention to the gods that the people of Egypt worship, and then you start to take a look at what's going on in the plagues, what you start to see is it seems like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, the God who sends Moses and Aaron, Yahweh is taking on these gods one by one. First plague is turning the Nile River to blood. Yahweh saying, I'm greater, I have more power than Hapi. The next plague is this invasion of frogs in the land of Egypt. They wake up in the morning, their bed is filled with frogs. They go into the kitchen, they open the oven, it's filled with frogs. Everywhere they step, they're stepping on frogs. Ugh. It's, it's God, Yahweh, taking on Heket. There's another plague where the lice, uh, the dust of the earth turns into lice. A way of God taking on Geb, the god of the earth. Hathar, this uh, goddess of love and protection depicted by cattle. There's a, a plague where disease and pestilence kind of take out the entire livestock of the nation of Egypt, including the cattle. Think about the devastating economic consequences that would have caused. Military, uh, food supply, transportation, farming would have been devastated by the loss of all this livestock and, and, and the cattle. Uh, there's a plague where the sun is turned into darkness, and on and on it goes. And what you start to see happening, the plagues, it's not like God is sitting up in heaven saying, what are the weird things that I can do to kind of make life miserable and torture the people of Egypt? This is God very intentionally, strategically, uh, not, not out of torture or vengeance, but God is just saying, why are you worshiping these puny gods, these powerless gods? Why would, you devote, why would you put your faith in gods who have no real power? Why would you trust your life to gods who have no real power? And I think that gets us to you and to me. What are the false gods in our lives? When, when things are not going the way we want them to be going, when there are circumstances, situations that arise in our life, life where we feel powerless to do anything about it, where do we turn? Who do we trust? What do we trust? Where do we put our faith? There's a guy named Scott Galloway. He is a professor of marketing at the NYU School of Business, uh, Stern School of Business. He's also an entrepreneur, successful, started all kinds of companies and firms. He's got revenue over $100 million a year. Last year, he wrote a book called The Four, where he takes a look at Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Why are they so successful? Why, why are they having such a, a, an impact in our economy and in our lives? And so I'm just going to kind of read some 
financial statistics about the four as we dig into this. Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Apple have a market capitalization of $2.8 trillion, the GDP of France. So these four companies are the same kind of economic engine as the entire country of France. A staggering 24% share of the S&P 500 top 50, close to the value of every stock traded on the NASDAQ in 2001. These four companies are huge, they're successful, all kinds of uh, financial power behind these four. Let's take a look at them kind of one at a time. How about Amazon? Amazon, with a market cap of $591 billion, is worth more to the stock market than Walmart, Costco, TJ Maxx, Target, Ross, Best Buy, Ulta, Kohl's, Nordstrom, Macy's, Bed Bath & Beyond, Saks, Lord & Taylor, Dillard's, JCPenney, and Sears combined. Not horrible. And it's nothing compared to Apple. Here's what he says about Apple. In 2016, Apple's profits were greater than the revenues. Apple's profits were greater than the revenues of either Coca-Cola or Facebook. I got this from an article he wrote this week, uh, this year. Uh, this quarter, January to March of 2018, Apple will clock nearly twice the profits of, that Amazon has produced in its history. So in a three-month stretch, Apple generates more profits than Amazon has in its entire history. And so he's wanting to write about why, why are these companies doing so well? Uh, what is it about them that we like what they're doing, the services, the products that they are providing? What's this all about? Here's part of what uh, he says, Scott Galloway. Uh, next slide. The four promote an image of youth and idealism, coupled with evangelizing the world-saving potential of technology. I just think that's interesting language, isn't it? Technology has the potential to save the world. That's our message. That's our good news. That's our gospel. And we're going to be evangelists of this good news, telling the world about the power, the life-saving power of this kind of technology. And so he says they've kind of tapped into four basic human instincts. Google is all about our mind. Think about how we talk about things here at Hope a lot of times. We want to be a place, a safe place for you to ask any question you've ever wanted to ask about life and faith. And we encourage you to do that. Ask questions, ask questions, ask questions. That's what Google is all about. I mean, think about it. If, if, you, if you were to go to the doctor, you got something going on, and you want to have the doctor tell you what it is, and you're sitting in the doctor's office, and she says to you, here's the results of, of the tests, here's what's going on, here's the diagnosis. As soon as you leave the doctor's office, what are you going to do? Pray. You're going to pray. <laughs> no, you're right. You're honest. That's what you're going to do. You're going to Google it. You're going to Google the disease. You're going to Google possible treatment plans. You're going to Google what a successful outcome look like. And you're going to do all of that before you really even think about praying. He says Google is basically the God of our culture. And if that sounds a little over the top, think about it. Look at the way he writes about it in this next slide. Think back on every fear, every hope, every desire you've confessed to Google's search box. And then ask yourself, is there any entity you've trusted more with your secrets? Does anybody know you better than Google? Now the answer is yes, God does. God knit you together in your mother's womb. God knew you before you were born. God has the hairs on your head counted, numbered, which is amazing for some of you, not so amazing for some of the rest of us. 
God knows you, God sees you, God loves you, and God wants you to come to me with the questions. Ask and seek and knock, and I'll open the door, and I'll provide those answers, and I will be the one who gives you hope. Um, Facebook, it's all about what's going on in our heart. Again, think about the way we talk about life here at Hope. We are designed and built and created for relationships, a relationship with God, a relationship with one another. And research kind of bears out the fountain of youth is the depth, the strength of our social bonds. The, The stronger our social relationships, the healthier we are, the longer life expectancy we can have. And so part of what Facebook is trying to do is be a tool that enables us to uh, give love and to receive this kind of love that is life-giving. They're tapping into our our heart desire. Uh, Amazon, he talks about our survival instinct. He talks about what's going on in our gut. So in almost every um, generation throughout world history, the answer to the question, do I have enough food and clothing and shelter, that, the way you answer that question is, was a life or death question. In our generation, do I have enough food in my refrigerator or in my pantry? Do I have enough clothes in my closet? Almost all of us would answer that question by saying yes and then some, probably to an excess. I've got a garage full of stuff. I've got a storage unit full. Of stuff. I have more than enough stuff, and yet... This survival instinct, no matter how much stuff we have, we think we still need more. What if this happens? What if that happens? I need more, I need more, I need more. And so Amazon has made it really easy for us to get more. And often with free shipping and handling. So we got that going for us. And then there's Apple. And he he talks about, we've got the uh, instinct, survival instinct is kind of our number one instinct. But close second to that, he calls our instinct for procreation that we're, we're sexual creatures, and as such, we're always trying to put out an image, trying to prove to people that we are desirable. And he says, this is what Apple and Apple's products are really all about, that people are not so much interested in facial recognition software. That's not why they're spending $1,000 for an iPhone 10 or X or, or whatever you call it. It's a way of communicating to the people around you, I've got disposable income. And I value the arts. And here's the way he words it in this article. He says, he says, if I have an iPhone, that should signal to you. If we were to mate, our children would have a better chance of surviving than if you were to mate with someone with an Android. <laughs> Which is ridiculous, right? And I'm guessing he's not too far off from the truth. I think that gets us back to the plagues and what's going on in in the Exodus story. As God is taking on God after God after false God after false God. I I don't know about you, but when when I was looking over these lists of gods that these people worshipped, I found myself thinking, this is ridiculous. Why, Why would you think this is, as you observe the world around you, as you observe life, why do you come to the conclusion that there's this fertility goddess who is a woman's body with a frog's head and I should worship that? Or whatever, whatever it is that there's a God for this particular thing, a different God for that particular thing, but no one God who has all of the power, just a bunch of tiny little gods with a little bit of power. How, how ridiculous it seems to me when I view the way that they're thinking about life. And then I read this book about Apple and Amazon and Google and Facebook, and I have to point the finger at myself, right? Uh, What if we were to ask you to pull out your phone, whether it's Apple or Android, who knows, and there's an app on there uh, that will let you know, here's how much time you have spent on that device in the last 24 hours. 
Here's the uh, amount, the percentage of time that you've been on your phone. Hardly any of it is used for actually making phone calls, right? Here's how many hours you spent playing Farm Heroes or Candy Crush. Here's how many hours you spent on social media or whatever it is that you do on, on that device. I think most of us would be a little embarrassed if we had to reveal to everyone, here's how much time I've spent, wasted, whatever language using this device. And then I think about myself, when's the last time I had to write a sermon without the use of Google or, or my MacBook? What, what if I had to actually use notebook and pencil and just the Bible to write a sermon? How different would that make life for me? And you start to see the ways in which these, uh, and again, please don't, I'm not saying we should boycott these. That's, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just asking you, this is the question of the message. Are you following the right leader? Are you following, in, in what ways do these four companies or other companies or, or sports or uh, whatever it might be, in, in what ways are they actually leading your life? Instead of having God be the leader in your life, what are the false gods that you set up in your life Then somehow you've convinced yourself they have the power to make your life better? So eventually, uh, Pharaoh says after these plagues to Moses and Aaron, you can leave. You can go. Uh, make your way to the promised land. What's the shortest distance between two points? A straight line. So if the Egypt, uh, Israelite slaves, Hebrew slaves, are going to go from Egypt and they're in the land of Goshen to the promised land, the shortest route would have been right along the coast, but that's not the route they go. When, when you start reading through it in Exodus chapter 13, you see that there's a route that's a little unexpected. Exodus 13, starting in verse 17. When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea, almost exactly the opposite direction of where they want to go, where they want to end up. That, that video that we watched at the beginning of the message is from a DVD called The Exodus Revealed. Several people in the congregation, when we started going through this uh, message series on Exodus, have asked me if I, I had seen that, and I hadn't. Uh, you can watch it on YouTube on your smartphone later if you want to. Um, the Exodus Revealed. And so it's a bunch of academics uh, who are trying to take the biblical account, and can we match it up? Can we line it up with actual archaeological evidence? So here's a clip that kind of explains why they took this wilderness detour, this roundabout way that leads them to the Red Sea. Take a look. If the Israelites traveled from Goshen to the Aqaba coast, then the biblical description of their route to freedom is very specific. They walked a road through the Sinai Desert in the direction of the Red Sea. During the time of the Exodus, three main roads existed in the Sinai. The Way of the Philistines traced the Mediterranean coast past a series of Egyptian military outposts. Understandably, the Israelites did not follow this path. The Way of Shur, an inland trail, terminated not on the shores of Yam Suf, but in the vast desert of southern Canaan. Only the southernmost road a trade route that stretched from Egypt to the top of the Red Sea and then on to Midian matched the biblical description. 
It's a route that runs through more or less central Sinai from the Egyptian cities which uh, are in the Nile Delta and then on down to, to northwestern Arabia. This is a period when the incense route was beginning to develop. So we do know, we do have evidence of, uh, of travel back and forth between Egypt and uh, what we would call Midian. Located above the peninsula's rugged mountain ranges, this trade route was well suited for travel, as its flat, hard-packed terrain made long journeys on foot manageable and commonplace. When Moses fled from Pharaoh after killing an Egyptian slave master, he would have followed this route to sanctuary in ancient Midian. Then, 40 years later, he led his people out of Egypt over this same desert road again. And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them. and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and night. The Swedish Bible says clearly that uh, they were traveling both day and night, and at night they had this pillar of fire leading them and enlightening them. And uh, at day it was this cloud that I guess also overshadowed them because of the heat of the day, so they could travel both day and night. By walking through the desert during the cooler hours of the early morning and night, the Israelites could have crossed the Sinai in approximately three weeks, the time allowed by the biblical record. The scriptures imply they had a significant head start on the Egyptian army, for many days passed before Pharaoh decided to bring Israel back into captivity. Then, while his army prepared to give chase, he received a surprising report of Moses' path through the wilderness. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea. For Pharaoh will say, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And it says in the scripture that they turned. And uh, that could be interpreted in different ways, but uh, our understanding is that they turned southwards and Pharaoh then was so certain about that they were trapped within the peninsula. This satellite photograph defines the Israelites' unexpected change of course. they had entered a winding maze of dry riverbeds that branched off the southern trade road in a twisting path to the coast. And within this canyon, called Wadi Watir, Moses and his people were hemmed in between walls of rock 2,000 feet high. Uh, seriously, if you like that kind of stuff, I'd encourage you to watch that video and get on uh, Google Earth and just kind of fly through that and, and see what, it's kind of, kind of fascinating. On one hand, it makes sense that this would be the direction that the people go. They don't want to go uh, the short 
route that would lead them into battle, and it's a route Moses would have been very familiar with as he goes back and forth between Midian and Egypt, a, uh, a way that he would have known how to lead the people through it. But if, if he was going to go into Midian the way that he always did, he would have gone across the top of the Red Sea, the top of the Gulf of Aqaba. Instead, they turn back, and it says they camp by Pihahiroth, which is a Hebrew term that means the mouth of the gorges. The mouth of the gorges. It's almost like God is intentionally leading Moses and the Hebrew people to a place where they will end up being trapped. Why would God do that? They got the Red Sea in front of them. They got Pharaoh coming up behind them, the strongest army in the world at the time, and 2,000-foot-tall rock cliffs on either side of them. They're trapped. And when the people of uh, Israel find out about this, they are not pleased. They are not pleased with Moses, and they start to cry out. Let's read this together, Exodus 14, 11. Read it out loud with me. Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Why, 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 why? And they're scared, and they're angry, and they're convinced the predicament that they are in is because of a failure of leadership. You ever been there? How's work going for you these days? You looking forward to tomorrow morning because your boss is so great and the direction that everything's going at work, you're just like all aboard, come on, let's do it. Maybe you're the boss and you're like, yeah, I think things are going great. All right. <laughs> Who's the boss at home? How are things going at home? Maybe that's a different kind of answer. I don't know if you knew this or not. And I think about three weeks, there's an election coming up. Did you know that? It's amazing to me how much time and energy people put into arguing and debating. If we can just get the right person from the right party in the right position of power, that's going to solve all of our problems. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Vote. Please vote. Why wouldn't you vote if you're able to? Be involved in the political process. We're at church. We're in a message where we're exploring the question, are you following the right leader? I think it's probably important for us to say there's a pretty big distinction between being involved in the political process and putting your hope in the political process. How's it going at church? You like what your pastor has to say? Uh, you like the direction that things are going? Anything ever happened that caused you saying, why are we doing this? Why are we not doing that? Why, 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 why? It's probably as good a time as any just to talk about gossip we don't talk about gossip very often, the destructive power of gossip. I think a lot of times, this is just preventative maintenance. I'm not hearing that there are all kinds of conversations happening. This is just a reminder how important unity is as we carry out the mission uh, uh, that God has given us. And so when, when we say we want to be united and not divided, that doesn't mean we're going to be unanimous on every decision that gets made. It just means when there is conflict, when you find yourself saying, why, 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 let's have that face-to-face -face conversation. Who are you following? Who is your leader? Well, hopefully it's Jesus. And Jesus says, here's how you deal with conflict. Matthew chapter 18, you go to the person who has offended you. You go to the person who has hurt you. You go to the person who has done something that's confusing to you, and you actually have a conversation. And so I would encourage you to do that with me, uh, with the staff members here at Hope. We're going to do all kinds of things all of the time that make you kind of scratch your head and go, I don't understand this. Like, why is there this IMEG thing going on behind me? Well, that doesn't matter. Are we just trying to be cool and have, you know, all kinds of tech? No, that's not why we're doing it. We actually have thought out why we do what we do a lot of times. The reason we're doing it is every time I stand up here, I look out and I see people who can't see me. 
They're stuck behind some giant of a person. And if I move, then they can see me, but now that person can't see me. And so we're like, yeah, so that's why we're putting it up there. And you can see this massive pimple growing on my chin too. So you got that going for you. Anyway, no, there, we usually have really good, well-thought-out reasons for why we do what we do, but that doesn't mean it's always the right thing to do. So come and talk to us about it. You might have better ideas than we have, and we need to hear that because we're better together. Who are you following? Are you following the right leader? And Jesus is always the right leader to follow. Jesus is always the right leader to follow. You know, when you look at Jesus, his baptism and then his temptation in the wilderness you see some real parallels between what's going on uh, in the Exodus story as they go across the Red Sea and then they wander in the wilderness. Three temptations that Jesus faces, that uh, the people of Israel face, that you and I face. Protection, provision, and power. So the people of Israel are at the edge of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's coming up behind them. They don't feel safe. They don't feel protected and they start whining about it to their leader. The good news is Moses isn't really the leader. God's the leader. Moses is just doing what God's asking him to do. Jesus gets tempted. He goes, uh, the devil takes him up on top of the temple, the tallest point at the temple, and the devil says, jump off. God will protect you. Angels will catch you. And Jesus says, I have faith that God will protect me. I don't need to put the Lord my God to my test, uh, uh, to the test. I'm just going to trust him. How about provision? God makes the way for the people of Israel to go across the Red Sea. Now they're in the wilderness and they're complaining because there's nothing to eat. We'd have been better off as slaves in Egypt. At least we have onions there. That's what the Bible says. Anyway, um, what about Jesus? In the wilderness for 40 days and nights, he's fasting and the devil says, turn these stones into bread and then you can eat and you can satisfy your hunger. Jesus' response is people don't live off bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Later on in his ministry, he'll say, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of my Father in heaven. I trust God will provide. It just might look differently than what you think. And so God provides for the people of Israel, even though they're whining and complaining and don't have faith. He provides manna from heaven and quail and water from a rock. How about power? People of Israel get into uh, the wilderness. They get to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to get the commandments. God saying, here's what it means to live together as God's people. And it doesn't take very long before the people say, I don't know what happened to Moses, but we better build ourselves a golden calf and worship it because that's the power that got us out of Egypt. Forty years later, after wandering in the wilderness, they're ready to cross the Jordan River. And in Deuteronomy 17, God reminds the people how easy it is to follow the wrong leader. How easy it is to think somebody with no power uh, really has the power that we need. God says there's going to come a time when a generation or two that, where people are going to say, man, everybody else has a king. We don't have a king. We just have God as our leader. We really want a king. We want to be like everybody else. We're tired of following God's lead. Jesus, devil takes him to a place where he can see all these kingdoms and nations, and the devil says, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give it all to you. Now, that might sound a little weird, but really that's what Jesus wants, right? That every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The devil's offering him a shortcut to what Jesus actually wants. And Jesus says, no. You don't get it. You don't understand what real power is all about. Real power is about giving yourself away. Real power is about love. 
the power of God's love, and there's no greater love than laying down your life for the people you love. And that's what Jesus does for you and for me. He gives us a different understanding of how power is to be used. These temptations that Jesus faces, that he goes through faithfully, are reminders to us when any other leader in our life is going to fail us. They're going to be far from perfect, but Jesus is perfect, and he's worth following. Would you stand with me? And let's pray as we get ready to sing our last song. Uh, Lord, the truth is we want to follow you, but often uh, we don't know exactly how to do it. I think a lot of times we're not even, we just kind of get into this rhythm. We're not even paying attention to who it is we're following. So I pray, pray Lord, that you'd get our attention, uh, that you would remind us you are a God who protects, a God who provides, a God who has the power to part the Red Sea, and you have the power to make a difference in our life. So whatever it is we're going through, Lord, uh, whatever failings the people in our life uh, who are leading us uh, have, we, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to remember, to remind ourselves that you are really the one calling us to follow after you. Follow me, Jesus says, all the time, every day. Follow me into a whole new kind of life. Follow me into a life of love and hope and peace and joy and grace and mercy. Follow me into the life that is truly life. Lord, help us follow in Jesus' name. Amen.